From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back. This is Michael Williams with uh, another episode of Capital Idea brought to you by the Defenders of Capitalism Project. I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Whitus, and we're we're going to talk about uh, talk about capitalism today and a number of issues. Uh, maybe a little foreign policy slant, huh? I think that sounds good to me, Mike. Yeah, it's it's an interesting world we live in today. I mean, uh, the big headlines are you know this whole invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, I want to kind of broaden that conversation to just the you know obviously talk about the the invasion itself and what's going on in Ukraine. And talk about the Russians, talk about the Russians as anti-capitalists. But anti-capitalism is really on fire around the world. Uh, Or to put it more in a sense, more specifically, authoritarianism is on the march all over the globe. Um, Putin is maybe the poster child for that. But that's that's the big topic of the day is, you know, talking about this whole trend of authoritarianism and what's been going on. And And it's, in my view, it's not just... Um, in Europe, it's it really is a worldwide phenomenon, and it's not just in the last year or so. People, and not even the last four years. I mean, there are lots of people in the U.S. who recognize uh, our presidential elections, the current presidents, that we, current president we have right now, and the, the immediate predecessor, and even the one before that. They have all seemed to get more authoritarian. Now, obviously, we don't have authoritarianism in the U.S. Thank God for the Constitution, right? But um, we're all trending that way. Um, I have some thoughts on that. What do you think, Mitch? Well, what I'd really like to get into is the headline of the day is, of course, the Russian-Ukraine war. And what I think a lot of people maybe overlook is how this really goes to what you're just speaking about, right? The dangers of authoritarianism. Why would the rise of authoritarianism lead to a more dangerous world? or lead to a world in which people may feel compelled to attack one another or countries attack one another. And that's really what I want to explore because I think you have some interesting things to say about that. Yeah. And it's, it's, to me, it's so obvious, but to most people, they don't make a connection to the capitalist system being the opposite of that, you know, uh, a free society or a society that recognizes individual and property rights and the rule of law uh, and has certain institutions, lots of checks and balances that, which our, our constitution provides that, that you know, really focuses on the sanctity of self-government. The, the person, the individual is the key unit. Um, that's the opposite of, of a, a, a collectivist system or a, a tyranny, a, a tyrant like Putin or an authoritarian like Putin. People don't know that contrast very well. They kind of get fuzzy and think, well, you know, capitalists are rich guys or capitalists are uh, business people who, you know, have lots more money than I do. And they don't think in terms of essentials. But let's talk about, you know, what's what's gone on. You know, uh, there's been an invasion. Putin built up I – mean, he's been saying it for years. Um, saying it for years, I guess I should be more clear about that. What has he been saying for years? He's been saying for years that he wants to reconstitute at least the old Soviet kind of 
uh, domination of a number of different geographical areas. But even beyond that, he wants to reconstitute the the whole uh, Russian culture. And that includes lots of places that were former Soviet bloc countries, but had some movement toward independence after the Berlin Wall fell and after communism fell. Um, Ukraine is obviously one of those countries who's been through a number of different revolutionary uh, phases over the last 20 years. Um, but he built up his forces along the Ukrainian border and there's a number of different rationalizations that observers have made or that he made about what was going on. The biggest you know, being, well, NATO has been expanding in Europe for the, for the last decade or so and a number of countries are, are joining NATO the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, um, you know, the treaty that happened after World War II to protect NATO or to protect NATO members, uh, most European, several Western European countries after World War II, and the U.S. being one of the prime uh, funders of that. But Ukraine was hinting like and asking to be able to be a member of NATO, and that was presumably a threat to to Russia, and he had to stop that. And it, it's interesting to see how lots of people in this country are kind of going, well, we understand why Putin's getting upset. You know, if you will have, have uh, you know, an enemy or puppets of an enemy kind of knocking on your back door, then maybe you should should uh, be able to kick them out. So he built up these forces and, and much to most people's surprise, he followed through on it and invaded. Uh, it's not going well. But he invaded Ukraine, and it's all-out war. It's the biggest war that's happened since World War II on European soil, and it's really, really a disaster for uh, the Ukrainians, but maybe even more so for the Russians, because their their invasion is not going well. You know, it's been uh, an embarrassment, from what I can tell, in terms of how the Russian army has performed. I think they thought. We'll roll in and and these uh, Ukrainians will fold. In fact, I've read a number of stories where Russian soldiers who are conscripted, they're drafted by force, uh, they're not a, a volunteer army, um, where they were even surprised that they were going to be doing this. And then they were told, you know, you're going to be welcomed as liberators. And so they were absolutely shocked in terms of what's gone on on the ground. They didn't realize how... Um, how vehement and how uh, strong the Ukrainian people and their army and their leadership would be in this case. Um, Ukraine's seemingly, it's hard to say they're winning because they're, they're definitely uh, inferior in terms of numbers and, and probably equipment and, and you know, their army isn't anything close to the, so, to the Russian army. But they're definitely holding their own, and they've they've got some really good leadership. Zelensky, President Zelensky from Ukraine, has done an amazing job of rallying his people, not just his um, his army, but the the citizens there are fighting, and they're fighting for freedom. They're fighting for the freedom that they they want to have. Now, there are people who are skeptical about you know how how free the culture has been there or could be, but. It's clear in my mind, and I, I don't know if you know this, Mitch, but I, I actually spoke in Ukraine, in Kiev. Yeah, uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? So I was part of a uh, – uh, this is something I've done for a number of years. 
I get invited over to um, what's called the Free Market Roadshow, and it's about 35 or 40 cities throughout Europe. In, in many cases, it's former former Soviet bloc countries who are inviting us, but they're wanting to learn more about market systems, freedom, the rule of law, you know, what the institutions that we have in the West or, or in the U.S. that make a capitalist system work. Um, and so they're, they invite speakers who have some expertise on economics or finance or markets or so forth to come and give uh, lectures. And the people, the people in Ukraine who invited us are definitely on the right side, in my view, and they were pushing their own government to be even more free than, than the establishment in Ukraine. Um, so there, there's definitely seeds that have been planted uh, for decades in Ukraine and in many of the surrounding countries to say, no, we want to have a freer society where the rule of law and property rights and contracts and all of those foundations that make for prosperity, health, and happiness um, really can flourish. And but again, Putin was making the trying to make the case that NATO is on his back step and he needs to do something about that. Um, that's one of the rationalizations. Well, and right before the invasion, he gives this fiery speech where he basically questions Ukraine's right to exist. Yep. Not only that it shouldn't join NATO or that it's a puppet of the United States, but really it should just be a part of Russia anyway. Right, and it's partly an ethnic thing. It's a it's a racial, ethnic, cultural thing. You know, these are these are at root the same people, so they should stay in Russia. They should be part, and and, and that's one of the roots of of any war or, or many wars, I should say, where people think, well, this is about um, not having the border here, but having it over here because these are the same people. They they look like us and. And we're protecting them and they're the same culture where in reality, the Ukrainian people, many of them, maybe a vast majority of them are saying, no, I don't, I'm not part of that culture. I want to be free to. And it's, it's making a collectivist case, which is oftentimes what uh, authoritarians do. They're trying to say, I am a spokesman for the collective, you know, Putin being the spokesman for the greater Russian empire and the greater uh, uh, Slavic um, peoples and, and that they all need to be as one big unit, right? A collective. And, and he so happens to be just the one who's going to be in charge of them all. Well, and let's talk about Putin a little bit before we start talking about the war and what it means for being a defender of capitalism. But I've heard people say in the past, probably the past decade, people say, you know, we understand Putin isn't friendly to the United States, but he's a good leader. Yeah. He's a good leader to the Russian people. And I've always thought that that's a little bit of a thin premise because, well, it does depend on your definition of what a good leader is. If you, if your definition of a good leader is somebody who consistently assassinates political enemies with polonium in their tea, then yes, I guess Putin is a nice, good leader. Um, if you think a a good leader is somebody who completely wipes out free and fair elections in his country, then yes, I guess Putin's a good leader. That's not my definition of a good leader. I don't think Putin is a good man. I don't think he's a good leader. I think that he's dangerous to freedom in general. Absolutely. But just to address who Putin is, because I think there's a little bit of a 
misconception amongst some people in the U.S. that, yes, he's not friendly to our interests, but he's an effective kind of strong man and he's a good leader for Russia. Well, you know, I, I don't think leadership is about killing people you disagree with and cementing your own power. It's about, like you said, not being collectivist. <laughs> he has done his damnedest to recollectivize sure. Russia, to reconstitute the Soviet Union, as you said. So this is not, in my opinion, a good actor we are dealing with. This is a no, and it's he's an absolute thug. He's he an is absolute uh, uh, criminal um, on a grand scale, and history has seen examples like that. Um, and it's unfortunate when people see, you know, strength or a force of character as automatically uh, someone who's a good leader. There, there has to be two components to leadership, and and one is those characteristics of of being strong. I don't I don't really know that uh, Putin's that strong. I mean, you know, there's a lot of propaganda that goes out. You know, shows him with the shirt off or whatever. Yeah, riding a horse. <laughs> right. or, yeah, there's all kinds of uh, those kinds of things. Uh, but but even if he is, you know, strong of uh, physically strong and strong of character in terms of forceful in his delivery of a message or people follow him. Even if people follow him, that doesn't make him a good leader. Um, that's one aspect, but the other aspect is, you know, is is a moral aspect. Is he doing the right thing for his people? And it's, it's really sick to, to hear, especially Americans who should know better, uh, people who presumably understand freedom and who understand the capitalist system, uh, lionize Putin for his quote strength as a leader, and 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 as if he cares about his people. They're they're saying that they're saying things like that. He cares about his people. That's such bullshit. Oh yeah. I mean, he's he's done nothing but subdue people, and as you said, uh, you know, had had a number of individuals assassinated. That's interesting. You mentioned the that. Uh, I guess it was in London where he had somebody poisoned, right? Well, he's maybe, poisoned a few people. Yeah. yeah, Alexander Litvinenko. I think that was around 2006, 2007. And there's been a string of successful and unsuccessful poisoning since, which often end up poisoning and killing people who were not even involved in the yeah. plot anyway. Tea by the window is a <laughs> phrase that uh, has gained you know, lots of notoriety with regard to this character. And, and he has, like you said, poisoned people and had people assassinated and had people murdered. In the name of his power, I mean, and that's kind of, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I'm not necessarily calling for this. I don't have, I don't have the kind of inside information about what our CIA knows or could do or, but I would be in favor of having him assassinated, uh, Putin himself be, be uh, wiped out. Um, now you sound like Lindsey Graham. Well, I think he's right on that. I yeah. don't know. I don't know if you agree with that, but I, 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 I obviously the best thing that, the best outcome from my standpoint, uh, would be to have the Russian people depose him, to, yes. you know, take him down. And but but even then, you have uh, the scary aspect of okay, what other strongman or what other quote leadership does he have around him? And this is this is something that's endemic to a authoritarian collectivist culture. They end up having they insulate themselves from anybody who can really give them the truth. Um, and we saw that we saw that in this country. We've seen this, you know, in lots of cases where you have quote strong leadership and someone who's that kind of forceful personality. And in this case, I'm talking about Trump. The people around Trump, um, and, and again, I, I want to be careful and not necessarily make the equivocation that say that Trump is like or as bad as 
Putin, but the but aspect, he does like Putin. He does like Putin. Yes, uh, you know he came out. Uh, he came out right when the invasion would happen. It happened, and he said, "This guy's a genius." Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, but but what I'm saying is there there is the tendency of of leaders who uh, are authoritarians like that uh, to surround themselves with people who follow their orders, follow their lead, and and feed them what they want to hear. They're yes men. Uh, and you, you see that in, in lots of different organizational systems where you have that kind of, quote, leadership. But, but anyone who's just trying to get people to say yes or agree with them, even if they don't, that creates a lot of dysfunction. You don't get the, the actual what's going on on the ground. You don't get the reality of it. And so in the case of uh, uh, Russia, that's, the likelihood is you have a lot of people around Putin who are – who are if they were brave enough to say, okay, we got to take this guy out. He's, you know, it's it's bad. We're we're not winning. We're failing. If they were honest enough to say that, would they be um, any better of a leader of the the uh, Russian people or that country? Um, because they have this long history of being in line for that thuggishness themselves and and just supporting that. You know, not really understanding what the roots of freedom are. Um, just saying, okay, I'm the next guy in line that's going to take control and be the authority figure. Yeah. I Going to your question, do I agree with assassinating Putin? I'm mixed about it. I, I believe he is truly a threat to the self-interest of the United States. Absolutely. Particularly in the past few weeks. So because of that, I think it'd be justified to remove him from power. On the other hand, I wouldn't want to make things worse, cause a nuclear conflict, right. for the, instance. That's the big issue right now, it, not only with any question of assassination, but even no-fly zones, what's the role of NATO? If NATO actually gets involved, well, the U.S. is a big force in NATO. Now, there's a whole different argument there. Should the U.S. even be part of NATO? I mean, this is, we don't have uh, really vital interests in Ukraine. The American economy will do fine without really trading with Ukraine or Russia for that matter. Uh, but the Europeans have a lot more interest, not only because they do tr more trading with Ukraine uh, and the energy situation in that part of the world, but um, but just purely from proximity. Um, you know, Putin is a threat to European neighbors. Um, if, he, if he's successful in either purely subduing Ukraine which doesn't look likely, but or if he installs a puppet government there, um, most people, if they've learned from history, realize that authoritarians get empowered, emboldened by that kind of thing. If they see it as a victory, then they they say, "Who's next?" Um, oftentimes, uh, that's the that's the lesson from history: is when you appease bullies, um, they're emboldened versus if you stand up to them. And so, the question of what what the U.S. should do, whether it's assassination or or cheer the Ukrainians on or provide them arms? That's that's an interesting question right now in terms of foreign policy. So as defenders of capitalism, Mike, what is the proper role of the United States government as things stand right now? Well, the proper role of uh, a legitimate government, as we've talked about before on this podcast and as you and I have talked about before, is only to protect individual rights. That's, that is the massive – almost complete discovery and, and achievement of the founding fathers of the U.S. is to, to identify that being the key aspect 
of what a, a proper government does. Now, it gets more complicated than that when you talk about having you know, multiple branches of government, how, having a judicial system, having a legislature that does make laws, having an executive. All those things are should be uh, in place to for that one mission, protecting individual rights, protecting the freedom of your citizens. Um, and so what should a foreign policy with that kind of a pro-freedom regime mean? It would be the same kind of thing. It's protecting the rights of its own citizens. And so a foreign policy means being self-interested, ident- trying to identify um, where are the vital national interests, not national as in nationalistic, because that's, that's where people get confused or collectivistic. But what about the, the U.S. citizens? What are our, our crucial interests around the world? And we certainly have an interest in, in other societies being free, but we are not obligated morally to provide that freedom for them. Um, and again, Ukraine is not necessarily a vital interest of the U.S. Um, as I mentioned, I have a, a warm spot in my heart for the freedom fighters that I met and certainly from observing the conflict right now, the, the uh, atrocities that the Russians are, are visiting upon this country that, that is trying to become more free. Um, but do we have a – do we as a country have that kind of obligation? I don't think so. I don't think we do. I think we have every reason to be supportive of them. Certainly morally, that's one of the most important things. We need to be a moral voice and condemn what Russian is do- Russia is doing. But that that that's a whole cascade of things. You know, should we be part of a NATO? Should we be? Should we even be part of the UN? You know, do, it, it, does it make sense for a capital, a free country like ours, mostly free? I mean, we're maybe slipping a little bit, but mostly the leader of the free world. Does it make sense for us to s- sit there in? the UN and have this charade of having the Russians be the head of the security council. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, And it's a radical position to say the U S really has no business being part of the UN, but that, that is the principled position I take. Um, And there's all kinds of other uh, peripheral issues about that in terms of our foreign policy. What should, what should our government do in this case? What should, what we should be doing is, Supporting, and I think it's okay to be arming um, the Ukrainians and hoping like heck they keep that resolve. But I think to clarify, Mike's here saying we don't have a direct stake. You know, we shouldn't put American boots on the ground in Ukraine. But you are saying mm, maybe we get rid of Putin, which also seems like a pretty big act of war. Well, I'm saying I think it'd be okay. I'm not saying that we should. And that's where I, I, I – I have to hedge because uh, I don't have uh, the insight as to whether we could and whether it would be smart on the ground in Russia as far as the current environment. There, there may be a case to be made that it, it really is in our interest to assassinate uh, Putin because of the threat he represents to American citizens worldwide. You know, He has killed American citizens. He has killed lots of people and he threatens as a world power – as a, as a nuclear power, he threatens uh, freedom around the world. Um, and so I'm saying it would be fine if he got assassinated. I'm not sure that's the best thing we could do. So the best thing we could do right now, in in your opinion, and maybe from the perspective of a defender of capitalism, is help the Ukrainians 
but don't get directly military militarily involved. I think that's right. I think that uh, – and in one sense, Biden has the right approach from that perspective, even though most of what he's done has been sort of disastrous. I mean he – the Europeans are coalescing around this. And I'd, I'd, I'd say this is mainly due to Zelensky being a great leader you know, and maybe, maybe a great propagandist. You know, he's been really good in terms of being there uh, – and it's not even fair to say that. I don't think it's fair to say that you know propaganda in his case. There's certainly, I mean, that's part of war is having some some information campaign. But this is a guy who turned down, um, you know, being airlifted out of there, and uh, you know he's 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 earned his bones as a heroic figure right now because he's actually leading those people. And our policy uh, has been slow and plotting. Uh, but we did have good intelligence and we did provide that to the Ukrainians. Um, the biggest thing that Biden really should be doing right now, aside from the sh- sanctions that he has put in place, and I, I think those are right, uh, I think it's good that he finally personally sanctioned uh, Putin, which is something that many world leaders are loath to do because um, they're worried about you know, maybe somebody putting a price on, them he- on their head or, or you know, freezing their assets or whatever it might be. But he should uh, certainly – and this this is in one sense just more obvious, the state that we've got brought ourselves to. But he should absolutely free up and remove all the regulations that he's put on the fossil fuel industry in the US. I mean energy is one of the you – know, we talked about NATO. We talked about Putin's aspiration to reconstitute the, the great Russian empire. But a lot of this does have to do with resources and energy. And uh, the U.S. a number of years ago achieved sort of a uh, energy independence by, you know, implementing some incredible technology and fracking. And then that all got reversed with the Biden administration. Um, there's a lot of uh, energy that could be produced in this country and should. Um, he should remove the Jones Act, which is a whole – you know, there's some technicalities to it, but it's basically, you know, a – uh, a protectionist measure uh, protecting longshoremen and, and unions and shipping. Um, it, it makes it actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the Jones Act, but it, it makes it more expensive to maybe ship oil or any uh, commodity or any goods from one U.S. part to another. It's one of the factors that makes visiting Hawaii very expensive, yeah. which – I have a personal interest in because I'm visiting Hawaii in a few weeks. So I wish you hadn't brought that up, Mike, because I'm really not looking forward to paying Hawaiian prices. Yeah, Hawaii, Hawaii definitely has some uh, costly expenses. I'm looking forward to hearing about your trip. I, I'm jealous of you because that's uh, that'll be nice, to, especially this time of year. And maybe with all this uh, all this going on, it, hopefully it'll be a nice uh, rest for you, Mitch. Well, you'll be jealous until I show you my receipts, <laughs> and, and then you'll be happy you just stayed here. Yeah, and most Americans don't realize that, and they, and they might um, they might even be empathetic when you start getting down into the the nitty gritty of okay, this protectionist thing, this union supporting legislation, this you know, they don't think in terms of principles of no, what is the purpose of government? It's to protect rights, not to you know. Uh, have favors or cronies or and that's that's one of the challenges when when people think about capitalism they sem- sometimes think of it as you know uh, business people making deals with senators and protecting themselves and that's not capitalism that's not at all what capitalism that's cronyism and and you know obviously Russia is uh, an extreme version of that with the, the oligarchs in Russia who run uh, much of the country 
uh, if you could call it businesses, but it's mainly it's mainly uh, resource companies, and it's and it's run you know uh, like a mafia organization, and there's not really truly free trade that goes on there, and they have the the economy to prove it. I mean, they're, they're, the Russian people are suffering. Uh, the Russian economy has shrunk uh, because they're not really productive in anything other than uh, shipping oil. And I, I want to connect a couple of points here, Mike, because I completely agree that being energy independent is really critical for the United States and something that we can actually do as Absolutely. a country. We have vast energy resources. Going along with that, I think this takes me to another point of tribalism, which really is collectivism, that I've seen emerge even with this this war between Russia and Ukraine. And what I mean by that, so for instance, the Keystone Pipeline, right? Biden comes into office, says, no, that's for sure canceled. Well, the truth is the Keystone Pipeline I think would have been good. It wouldn't have come online until probably 2023 at the earliest. So all of the increased energy prices, no, that's not all just due to the Biden administration, right? These There's other factors at play, but what we've seen, and this is of course not a unique phenomenon these days, but people like Tucker Carlson get on <laughs> and everything that the current administration does if you're a Republican and it's a Democrat administration, you need to just say how horrible everything is and you completely lose all your critical thinking. And we're seeing that happen here where Tucker Carlson goes on and is supporting Vladimir Putin and saying, well, Vladimir Putin never called me a racist. Uh, and, you know, what if another country had influence in Mexico? You know, we wouldn't like that on our southern border. And then, of course, he flips flops, but still is all just blaming the Biden administration. There's no free thought. And I think that's also very dangerous. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's really uh, unfortunate that, that many – I don't want to say all Republicans, but many Republicans have been very, very sympathetic with that uh, authoritarian tilt over the last number of years. And that makes them naturally – not, I mean, not sympathetic in some cases, maybe so. In fact, like you said, Tucker has said things, you know, Candace Owens, people, Josh Hawley, people like that have, have explicitly said things that were supporting Putin. Yeah. Um, and like you said, they're, they're dialing that back some. And hopefully the Republican Party and the mainstream Republicans will um, punish them for that. And, and this will be maybe, uh, a chance for a rebirth in the Republican Party to to say no, we we reject authoritarianism. We're seeing this blatant, blatant criminal act of Putin, um, just thuggish behavior, and it's not that that's not what we want in America. We want um, statesmen who are put into leadership positions to to follow the American tradition of not just tradition, but the American institution of protecting rights. Um, and you know, recognizing individual rights and property rights, but you know, you're right. There is this tendency right now on the part of both parties to say, "Well, those guys are the bad guys, and you got to be." Doesn't matter what they do, or it doesn't matter what my team does. They're worse, so I'm going to be anti anti Democrats. I, I've, there was a thing that went viral um, on social media recently, 
actually before the Ukrainian situation, but you had these two guys at a Trump rally uh, who had T-shirts that said, I'd rather be Russian than Democrat. Yeah. And and they were applauded by by lots of people. And that's just a horrible, horrible trend to to see unthinking uh, Americans that maybe at one point in time were truly patriotic, but now are so vehemently saying you gotta you have to attack the other side, the Democrats, uh, and and they're importing their own version of of uh, collectivism, authoritarianism. It's a sad thing. It is. And I think it's it's okay as a country to to say we support Ukraine. We support the cause of freedom. Or in Ukraine's case, they were getting closer and closer to freedom over time. No, they weren't a perfect example of a free country. Well, there is no such thing right now. Um, uh, The U.S. has been drifting toward toward more of a authoritarianism. uh, I even say at times fascist state. I mean, there is a movement afoot there. And that's like, I think it is a worldwide phenomenon that you can't point to any real uh, bastion of freedom. Um, and part of it has to do with COVID. People didn't realize how that seemed to be an opportunity for power mongers all around the world to say, okay, we gotta, we're going to take control now because of this, this virus. Uh, but it's definitely a bad trend. Uh, I, I'm optimistic, though, that um, more and more people will see see that for what it is. And there's an educational process that will happen that uh, hopefully we're part of. And, and letting having people understand that um, collectivism itself and, and altruism, which is a moral theory upon which you know, collectivism rests, um, those are the two underpinnings of truly an authoritarian regime in the first place. Um, you end up having some authority figure that is going to speak from for the collective and ask for sacrifice. Um, uh, they're not going to say you matter as an individual. They're going to say no. You need to be able to sacrifice you your your life, your productivity, your aspirations for the greater good. And um, that's at root. Now that, you know, there's a long chain of connections there, but that's at root the the problem with our our culture worldwide right now, and including in the U.S. That reminds me, Mike. For any Shrek fans out there, their first first Shrek movie, the villain is talking to his soldiers and he says, many of you will die, but it is a sacrifice I am willing to make. That's right. That's what that reminds me of. Well, and that's the classic. I mean, you know, I'm, I am willing to make that sacrifice, I meaning I'm willing to sacrifice hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of you for the, quote, greater good. But that usually just means that that, that person uh, is a patho- pathological um, power monger who wants to stay in charge of, of the what they define as the greater good rather than letting individuals de- determine their own lives. Um, and that's, you know, it's a challenge because most people have that sort of mixed view not clear not clarity about what moral what the moral right is um and when you say uh, altruism is a bad thing um well most people were brought up with no that's that's really the ideal is we should be sacrificing ourselves for some greater good whether it's for the environment or our, our children or god almighty or whatever it might be it's it's the point is that we don't matter it's something bigger than us matters 
and that's what we should be uh, fighting for or or sacrificing for. And there's all too too many people who are willing to collect on those sacrifices, and those are the people who end up being the power mongers. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because the, the whole issue of authoritarianism is is something that people have to get their mind around. I mean, is a, is authority bad? Well, authority by itself is bad. I mean, it, and again, this comes up in the the issue of COVID. I mean, we've we've had this whole slew of quote experts who are telling us here's how the world should work, and and they're dictating, you know, using their authority to say, you know, you can't go to school, you got to wear a mask, you got to you have to get vaccinated um, by a use of force, um, and that's a bad thing, and people don't can't make the the distinction between an expert who truly is a good resource, because we all need experts. I mean, we're, in a sense, I'm posing as an expert right now saying, okay, I have some expertise on capitalism and how it applies in the case of foreign policy or how it, how it applies in the case of mutual voluntary trade or how it applies to politics. Um, and so we need experts. We need authorities. We need people like that. But we, more than anything, we need independent thinking, you know, each person who says, well, here's an authority that I trust. Well, why do you trust them? You know, what is it? Is, is it, you know, in the case of uh, this nationalist fervor that we're talking about, is, is it because they're saying, you look like me or you have the same ethnic heritage or, or you speak the same language? Um, why do I trust that person and their ideas? Well, I've got to be able to do some independent thinking, some some rational thought myself and say, well, is that a good essential to base my trust in that expert for? I mean, this person's, you know, supposedly a scientist. Well, is what he's saying, uh, you know, does, is what that person is saying integratable with all the other information I have? Or does it seem like maybe they're politically motivated? Um, so the question of authoritarianism versus independent thinking is, is, uh, a crucial issue right now in politics and, and more importantly in individual people's lives. And uh, it's important for people to learn how to think independently and what that means. Uh, yeah, I was, I was reading an example the other day, uh, a study, uh, and this is not really related to, to foreign policy or really economics or anything, but it, it hit, hit me about the issue of authoritarianism. And the study is uh, with pilots. Um, maybe you've heard of this, but there's, they don't do this in the air, but but you know most commercial pa- uh, airlines have a pilot and a co-pilot, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't do this in the air, but they do it in simulators. And so pilots are trained on the ground quite a bit in these simulators. And and the example, the, the study was the pilots would purposefully do something that the co-pilot knew was going to crash the plane. Okay. And in this case, the authority figure, and rightly so, is the is the pilot. The co-pilot's you know a backup. Uh, but he's not the authority or the expert in this case. And fully 25% of the time, the co-pilot would not do what they were trained to do, what they were supposed to do, and save the, you know, the passengers in the plane. 25% of the time, they would go with the authority of the pilot, even though he was doing something to crash the plane. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a powerful thing for people to go, well, this is the expert. This is the person. I'm going to put my faith in them. They know what they're doing. I'm not, even though the evidence right in front of my eyes is they are crashing the plane or they're murdering Ukrainians, I'm going to, you know, blank that out and not think for myself. I'm going to rationalize it somehow. 
Um, and that's kind of what we're up against. There's, there is partly, you know, a little bit of human nature there where you, where you do put uh, confidence in and have to put confidence. You have to put confidence in your parents and your teachers and all the different authority figures around you. But that's what it means to grow up. And, you know, sometimes I say that uh, uh, capitalism is a system for grownups. You know, capitalism is a system that says, you know, I got to I got to pull my own weight and I got to I got to decide what I like and I got to decide what's good for me. And I, I have to I have to figure out what's the purpose of my life and what's going to make me happy. And those are not easy questions. And I need other people, but I got to have that, you know, that independent thinking where I say, OK, who can I trust and why can I trust them and what and what can I trust them about? Um, so sorry for that little rant about you know, authoritarianism as an offshoot. But I think psychologically, that's one of the biggest things we're dealing with right now. And people need to, if they're going to be free, you have to be able to have some independent thought yourself. Well, with an audience of independent thinkers, Mike, putting this all together so that people can chew on some of the conclusions that, that you have and think about some of the things that you're saying, it seems like in summary, what we've talked about is Russia is absolutely wrong to have made the choice to invade Ukraine from a perspective, not just of the Russian people and this being bad for them, but just from an overall moral perspective, this is not the right right choice to make. No, absolutely. And, and any regime that does that, and, and this this is a, a broader point. We, we touched on NATO um, and I mentioned whether, you know, U.S. should be part of NATO or not, but, but it's completely invalid to say that NATO by – by saying, okay, we're going to have a NATO, a new NATO member called Ukraine. It's invalid to say that's a threat to Putin. You know, NATO is not an aggressor organization. In fact, in some some ways, they're pretty toothless. I mean, yeah. it takes it takes a long time to really wake up NATO and have them do anything. Um, but he, there's no validity there, uh, and that's one of the major points about understanding capitalism. You can't equivocate. Uh, a capitalist, a free society, with a warmongering authoritarian collectivist society. Um, so when you say, "Okay, we're going to be there," well, no one's threatening Putin from from Ukraine. The only threat is to, to that his people will see what a sham he is by seeing. And, and I think that's probably something that's happening anyway. I mean, you know, in one sense, it's great for the internet to be there. Now, China has done a pretty good job of maybe controlling and censoring the, the internet, and certainly. Uh, Russia has as well, but the, the internet has made it so the cat's in a sense out of the bag. People can observe more; they can they can see more what the outside world is like. Obviously, the extreme example maybe is North Korea, where they can't, um, and that's something we should be wary of. Our government trying to control information, um, but the big picture is. You know, a free capitalist country is not a threat to anyone. A person who says, I'm a traitor, I'm, I want to have a relationship with you as a voluntary mutual trade or walking away is not a threat to you. Um, and that, those are the key aspects of what a capitalist environment is or a capitalist freedom-loving person is. And that's what think, I think people should, should acknowledge and, and really learn more about. And, and to maybe wrap it up, I'd say one of the key tools – that people should adopt is just asking the question, what is the proper role of government? You know, we're, I'm, I'm preaching here. I'm, I'm the expert defender of capitalism and, and telling people, well, the, the right answer to that question is 
you want a government that protects rights. That's all you want is a government that protects individual rights. But the term rights is even complex. You know, do people understand what that means? So they should study, they should ask the question themselves, what is the proper role for my government in the first place? Is it to assimilate this uh, uh, large group of people that look the same? Uh, is it to um, protect the homeland? Is it to, um, to foster economic growth? Is it to educate the public? Is it to provide health care? Is it this whole long list of, of you know, material things that we should have our government do? Or is it, as I say, protecting individual rights? And that's the only thing they should be focused on. But people should ask that question, chew on it. And, uh, and I think if they do, honestly, they'll come to the same conclusion that this is what we rationally want a government to do. We want a strong government. We need a government that can do that, but to, to be laser focused on that role in our lives. And in this case, maybe it's okay and self-consistent to be a defender of capitalism and a defender of Ukraine. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it is. Not that they're necessarily uh, pure capitalists, like you said, but they are – they are certainly the heroes of the day. They're uh, fighting for their freedom, and you can tell that they're motivated for that. And, and that is an animating force, and we should learn from that. Absolutely, Mike. Well, I've learned a lot from you today. Thanks for joining me today. We'll talk to you guys next time. This is Mike Williams and Mitch Whitus signing off. Uh, please like us, support us, spread the word around, and join us for our next Defenders of Capitalism Capital Idea podcast.